Welcome, everybody, to episode number two of the Interventional Endoscopist. I'm your host, Munkavel Suchthave. As I talked about in my last podcast, I'm an interventional endoscopist and a gastroenterologist in the Phoenix, Arizona area, and I created this podcast to talk about all things interventional. Today's topic is going to be focused on endoscopic ultrasound in the ambulatory surgical center. Endoscopic ultrasound, as we all know, is one of the more important procedures that is done by an interventional endoscopist, and historically, a majority of these have been done in the hospital. Initially, the procedure took a long time. Um, obviously, if you look at the history of EUS, the first procedures were done with a gastroenterologist running the scope and a radiologist sit sitting in the room looking at the uh, ultrasound images. Um, as many of us know, uh, it takes a while to learn how to interpret these images. Um, and for many times, or for many of us, our initial experience looks like bad television reception. Um, initially, as these procedures were started, they were thought to be higher risk and also time-consuming. And that was probably the case when it first came out. But as expertise has grown, training has improved, uh, the procedures become more efficient. And I believe that the last five years and the next five to ten years will be the prime time for this procedure to take off in the surgical centers. As with all procedures, whether it be an upper endoscopy or an ERCP or even an ESD, experience creates a certain level of comfort. And once we get that level of comfort, our efficiency of the procedure gets better and our time uh, devotion to that procedure becomes quicker. Another reason why this procedure has been done historically in hospitals is the cost. This capital cost is quite expensive, and we'll get into that in a little bit, and the reimbursement hasn't always been the greatest. So a little bit about our experience in bringing endoscopic ultrasound to the ASC. Our group was formed in 2010, and we were a group that was focused on therapeutic procedures. Um, at that time, there weren't a lot of people in our community doing therapeutic procedures in the private practice setting. The competition in terms of private practice for doing your general GI procedures was pretty intense at that time. And we felt as a group that being or keeping a component of our pro group uh, as a therapeutic group or you know, focusing some time on those procedures would help make us more successful and allow us to be a more robust group. So in 2010, once the group was formed, we worked at a hospital and that's where we did most of our procedures, both screening and uh, colonoscopy and GERD procedures, et cetera. But then we also uh, did our therapeutic procedures, ERCP, et cetera, there as well. And around 2012, we made the decision to go ahead and form um, or create an ASC. And it was really good for us. And as the group and the center became more successful, we realized that um, endoscopic ultrasound would be a great line of business or a great revenue source and also a really good boon for our patients. Um, and again, I'll get into some of those benefits of it as well in just a few moments. So around 2012, we worked with Olympus and we uh, were able to acquire a 
Aloka 10 or, um, you know, the Alpha 10 EUS device, and we got two linear scopes and one radial, and we started performing procedures. We tracked a lot of data, and we actually published it in abstract form at ACG the following year and showed that it was safe and economically viable to do EUS. And we also looked at patient satisfaction, which was um, good. Um, one of the regrets I have is that we never actually published a paper, and we could still do it, but it's, the data is now like 10 years old, so it probably wouldn't make a lot of sense to do that at this point. Um, so the first question is, why would you even consider doing this? You know, the naysayers for this procedure thought, oh, it's, it, it's you know, something that we don't traditionally do. Um, it's risky. Um, the cost is too much, etc. And one of the reasons we looked at it was to future-proof our business. And, you know, forgive me for using the word business and revenue, and I know we're talking about medical topics, but at the end of the day, a private practice is a small business. And so I, I approach it from that perspective as well as a patient care perspective. But one of the reasons you want to future-proof it is just consider ColoGuard, for example. You know, there are theories that screening colonoscopy may go away and probably will go away over the next five to ten years as we get better at stool DNA testing and blood biopsies, etc., um, obviously, there's always going to be a need for colonoscopy to remove polyps and, and uh, get rid of them. But the screening component, which a lot of private practices use as their bread and butter, will evolve and may even go away. You know, same thing with uh, upper endoscopy for Barrett screening, for example, with all these uh, new technologies that are coming out and getting perfected, whether it's ESOGARD or cytosponge, etc. Um, capsules are helping us and you know, people are developing different type of capsule endoscopes to help with colonoscopy and upper endoscopy. You know, if you pay attention to technology and some of the tech websites, there are robotic capsules that are coming out. Obviously they can't remove things, but from a diagnostic perspective, a lot of our businesses going that way. And so adding another service line like an endoscopic ultrasound or other therapy procedures can help quite a bit. And then there are benefits. You know, the benefit to performing EUS and an ASC is that it can help boost your volume, it can sustain your volume, and again, another revenue source. So as in terms of the economics of EUS and an ASC or why you should do that, well, healthcare costs are rising, as we all know. Our reimbursement as physicians and is going down every year. I think this year we got around a 4% pay cut from Medicare. Um, facility fees tend to go up, but not dramatically every year. And insurers are looking for wherever they can do procedures cheaper. You know, that's capitalism. You know, try to spend as little as possible to get maximum benefit. Well, you know, an ASC to do a procedure, as long as you're paid at an ASC rate, is roughly half of what a hospital has. Um, so, for example, the Medicare rate for an endoscopic ultrasound is a little bit under $600, and with uh, FNA, at least in my region, it's a little bit under $700. Um, at the hospital, it's double that. Also, in a hospital, um, those fees aren't entirely bundled. For example, if you use costly accessories, such as in an ERCP with a stent, um, that cost can get transferred to the patient. In an ASC, 
you get what you get. And like I tell my kids, you get what you get. You don't throw a fit. Basically, you you um, you you have no wiggle room. The, you know, you're paid six hundred dollars, and that's what you have, and you have to make it work in there. Also, from um, a downstream revenue source, you know, many ambulatory surgical centers monetize anesthesia and pathology services. So this becomes another service line that dips into those revenue sources. Another reason why somebody would want to do this procedure in ASC is access. You know, uh, it decreases your time in the hospital. You have better procedure time. You, you get rid of your travel time to the hospital. You're, you're uh, breaking free of hospital drama, as I like to call it, which what I mean by that when I say it is you're not waiting on the physician before you to finish. You're not, you know, rushing through a procedure because you have somebody waiting and tapping their heels or toes at the door because you're taking too long. Um, you don't have to deal with um, just the turnovers and, and all the kind of things that can go wrong in a hospital. And, and I don't need to enumerate those because we all know what our pain points are with the hospital. In my view, uh, providing this at a surgical center does increase your availability because you're going there anywhere and you usually have a procedure day or a procedure block. And so to add these on, it can f help fill up those spaces. Um, there are more and more applications coming up for EUS, including um, obviously we know about celiac plexus block and that's something that could be done safely in an ASE. Neurolysis, not so much so, but um, you know, Blocks could be. Fiducial placements are uh, up and coming, finding a biopsy. And again, you know, your time is what makes it more most valuable for you. So you don't have to drive to the hospital and you don't have all the challenges that you have with an inpatient setting. Um, so what is the method or how do you get EUS, an EUS program started in your ASC? Well, the first thing, you need buy-in from your partners. You need uh, the practice to agree that this is something that they want to do. The other thing that you need is you need to have a good relationship with your industry partners. You know, first of all, is your capital. Uh, you have to look at all the pricing. You have to see, you know, what company do I want to go with? Is it, you know, Olympus, Fuji, Pentax, or anything else in that setting? And then you have the accessories. You have all the big vendors for FNA needles and, and those type of things. And so you actually have to work with the industry to really get yourself or your group the best rates possible. And however, you can leverage that. Um, obviously, legally, of course, but um, you know you have to work with them and, and, and find what that value proposition is. So in terms of your options for uh, capital equipment, you have your big three, as I call them, Pentax, Fuji, and Olympus. Um, many of them offer straightforward purchasing of new equipment. Um, they also have the ability to provide you refurbished equipment. So the, the biggest bulk of expense is going to be your processor and then your scopes. Um, some of the vendors are now experimenting with cost per case models, and that can be pretty lucrative uh, for a group depending on what your um, situation is. So definitely something you need to explore and really lean on your reps to help get you the, all, the biggest picture. Um, I'm not going to talk about what the costs are for us because obviously that's privileged information. And um, But what you can expect is that if you do go with the big three, your costs will be anywhere between 
$250,000 all the way to $500,000. And that really um, is contingent upon what you want. Do you want the latest and greatest, um, the best processor out there and three of each scope, or do you want, you know, what I call the bare minimum, which you need is a good processor that gives you a clear image. And and again, everybody has their own preferences on that. And I think for an ASC, you need to have two linears and one radio. Uh, Some places wouldn't even think about having a radio, but I find a lot of value in using a radio in um, luminal cases. Um, Also, there are newer technologies coming out. Uh, Endosound is a company that's making a disposable uh, EUS Pro, which may be a boon for uh, ASCs in the future. They're currently looking to get FDA approval. And so once that happens, it's going to be interesting to see you know, how they fit into the marketplace. Are they going to be a vendor that's acquired by one of the big accessory companies? Are they going to be an independent company? Or are they you know, going to be just... Um, uh, well, I mean, we have to see if they get FDA approval. So once they do that, it'll just be very fascinating to see what happens. Um, who should be doing these procedures? Um, everyone who does EUS should be able to do it, but honestly, you really want someone who's experienced. You need to be able to complete a procedure in 30 to 45 minute blocks. Now, that being said, I'm not asking people or telling people, or nor am I advocating to rush through your procedures, but you know, for a standard pancreatic cyst evaluation or for fatty liver or fatty pancreas, etc., you, you, you can't be doing these procedures in an hour or two hours, and you can't do what I term as sightseeing. Um, you need to be experienced enough to know what you're looking for and to look and, and, and to get it done. Um, you also want to be well-trained to be able to confidently and efficiently do a final aspiration. Uh, speed is important, um, and as I mentioned, efficiency. And also, you want to make sure you're well-trained because there can be some liability issues. So now that you are looking at this, what are some of the limitations to doing in the U.S.? Well, obviously the cost of the capital, as I mentioned, between 200 or 250 all the way up to 500. There's, uh, you know, if you do back-to-back-to-back procedures, um, you can, uh, you know, mess up the efficiencies with scope cleaning. And obviously uh, another thing that we haven't talked about yet is uh, fine needle aspirate, or sorry, uh, needles, uh, the cost of those needles. FNA needles are roughly a... Th- half the cost of fine needle biopsies uh, under some of the bigger companies. And that can really uh, hinder your ability to do these procedures. So I'll give you a real life example for us is our cost to do a procedure is roughly 250 to $300, um, you know, in a, as far as the U.S. Now that includes the cost of cleaning the scope, the technician, the nurse, um, you know, electricity, et cetera, et cetera. And also, when you add a needle, um, standard FNA needles are roughly around $200. Now, again, this is goes back to your industry relationship, and you can get it cheaper, and you may get it a little more expensive. But a fine needle um, biopsy or FNB needle can be close to $400, depending on the vendor. And when you add that $400 to your uh, 250 or 300 to do the case, now you're around $700. And for an FNA or an FNB, the reimburse is almost 650 to 700 So again, it's just simple math. You have to make sure that that needle that you're paying for is cheap enough so that it doesn't destroy your um, 
cost per case, etc. Um, so some of the challenges that we have are reimbursement, which I'll get into in a second. Um, the other one is training your staff. Endo staff, as we all know, in 2023 and in the post-pandemic era, uh, turns over quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I joke around, but not really, is that an endotech can make more money and have better benefits and probably have a better quality of life by just simply going to work for Chick-fil-A and they'll make more money doing that. Obviously, another challenge is competition. You know, when I started uh, with my group in 2010, I was one of four uh, endosonographers and therapeutic endoscopists in the city. Um, and that time, the city was around four and a half to five million people. Um, that's excluding uh, places like Mayo Clinic and the VA, etc. I'm just talking about the private world. And at present, there's close to 35 or 40 people. So more competition means uh, possibly less procedures at every facility. Um, the the um, next challenge is the capital. And, you know, I talked about the cost earlier, but I'm just going to give some real numbers without naming the companies. So I have three companies listed here. For their high-end processor, for company A, it's $267,000. For company B, it's $155,000. And for company C, it's $180,000. For entry-level processors... The range is one hundred and fifteen to two hundred thirty-six thousand. Uh, as far as scopes are concerned, um, seventy-five thousand to one hundred seven, and for linear scopes and for radio scopes, seventy-five thousand to one hundred twenty-one thousand. These are list prices, of course. And again, I you know to respect the companies that provided me this information, I, I just won't reveal their names. But you know, as you do your own research, you'll see which one's which. So the list cost for a new program to have a high-end pro processor and two linear and one radio, 405000 to 602000 So, you, you know, when you look at that, then you have to look at the reimbursement uh, of the procedure. Um, but before I get into that, one more thing I want to mention was the needles. Um, you know, and there's four companies that I looked at when I got this data together, and the range for F&A needles between two hundred and two uh, three fifty. So 200 to 350 across four companies, and F&B is 200 to 464. Um, if you get into fiducials and you really want to put in the ASE, which I don't recommend today because I don't see that that would be a procedure that, um, I mean, could be affordable to the center, but two of the four companies out there offer fiducials, and they're 450 and $600 respectively. Now, as far as reimbursement, the thing that a lot of people want to know. So uh, most of you know, or most of you who bill your own procedures or code them, know that the code for EUS with FNA is 43242, and for no FNA, it's 43259. This is assuming that the exam goes to the level of the duodenum, and there's a separate code if you don't go that far, and that, that um, you can look it up. It's not one that most of us use anyway. So in terms of 43242, the RVU um, payment is 4.73 in 2018, and in 2023, it's also still stayed at 4.73. Conversely, for 43259, which again is just EUS without FNA, the work RVU um, is 4.04. Uh, and um, so a little bit less. Um, the physician fee for 4.2, which again is the FNA in 
2018 was $278, and in 2023 it goes down to $266. For the uh, 5-9 code, the uh, physician reimbursement or average national Medicare rate is about $228 or $229. Um, so to give you an idea, and I'll just go back to the 42 code, the FNA, just to kind of highlight the point, that the hospital in 2018 was paid 1427 and in 2023 it was, it's being paid 1625 whereas in the ASC in 2018 it was 627 and uh, now 693 respectively um, so obviously if you're an insurance company paying out these bills you know you want to try to divert as many procedures to the ASC as you could um, but, you know, I, I think this is something that you can really leverage to your advantage. Obviously, physician fees keep going down, and, and they always do, and they always will. And this is kind of where I'm going to say to anybody listening to this podcast, if you do belong to ASGE, ACG, etc., you really, really want to get involved as much as possible. Um, you want to support their efforts at Health and Public Policy Committee, or their Health and Public Policy Committees, because the reality is that you know, without any support from uh, the physician community, uh, we keep getting cut. And, you know, if you think about it, a procedure that's technically as challenging as an EUS with an FNA, where at times you're putting a needle a few millimeters away from someone's heart or aorta, you're probably being paid less than your car mechanic. So something to really consider is to support your uh, societies uh, as you can, get involved lobby with them, talk to your local reps. But I think if you don't, um, these numbers are just going to keep going down every year. Um, anyway, sorry, so that's that soapbox. So as far as um, our practice's initial experience, so from April 2013 to April 2014, we measured our volumes, and we did 885 endoscopic ultrasounds. That was with two endosonographers, myself and one of my partners. And we did 313, or a 35% uh, FNA rate. Our diagnostic yield was 89%. We did not have on-site cytology, and that's a criticism of doing EUS in an ASE. Uh, but I think that most of you will agree that there is a trend, or there's a lot of shift in the trends. And rows or rapid on-site evaluation is not being... Um, as it's not thought to be as necessary as it might have been 10 years ago. Uh, so definitely something, it's a criticism and it's, it's a valid one, but it's something that you have to look at. 53% um, of our procedures were, were being done to evaluate a pancreatic or biliary abnormality. 17% were for luminal cancer staging. And 96% of our procedures were upper endoscopic ultrasounds. There's not a lot of lower EUSs that we're doing. I think part of the reason for that is a lot of the lower EUSs being done by colorectal surgeons. Um, but, you know, just, just to give you an idea. And we did have in that one year out of 885 procedures, five major adverse events or 0.6%, which required post-procedure hospital either admission or evaluation. In terms of patient satisfaction, we had no difference uh, versus colonoscopy. And... Our average cost um, uh, cost saving by Medicare was four hundred six dollars when compared to a hospital outpatient department facility. 
Um, we also did an analysis that a threshold volume of six and a half procedures per week was required for the ASC to be revenue neutral with respect to EUS. So that was then. Obviously, we need to redo this analysis now with changes in reimbursement and whatnot, and that's something that we'll get into. Um, but that's what we have. Other data, there was a multi-center study that looked at the feasibility of both ERCP and EUS FNA and an ASC, and that was done from June of 2014 to November of 2014. Uh, prospect they prospectively enrolled patients, and uh, they had 375 patients, of which uh, 277 were done in the ASC, and of those 277, 160 were ERCP, and so they did 117 EUSs. Um, and um, their adverse effect was about 3%, or adverse event rate was about 3%. So another, you know, study that shows relatively safe. Um, a little bit higher, though. I mean, our, we were at 0.6%, and they were at 3%, but that's also because 61% of their patients were ASA 3 or higher, and uh, this looks like this facility was a little bit higher risk. They had a lot of patients with end-stage renal disease, pulmonary disease, et cetera. So it's hard to say exactly what, but you know, they, they made a good attempt there. Um, so again, the other kind of thing to consider is your pathology. You know, you have your cystic lesions and your solid lesions. As far as your solid lesions are concerned, there is a disadvantage in that we do not have rows, as I mentioned earlier. And as I've also said earlier, more, there's more data saying that rows might not be as important as we thought it was, but again, um, it has been the standard of care, um, and we had an 89% yield. Cystic lesions was interesting. You know, we did fluid, and we, we actually ran into a lot of problems in our hospitals trying to get our fluid tested for CEA, amylase, etc., uh, because the volume that they wanted. And we actually started working with a... Um, a, ta a lab, a molecular lab, like uh, at that time it was Red Path and now it's Interpace. And you know, they can do the test on a lot smaller volume of fluid. So we actually just outsource our cystic fluid lesions um, or cystic fluid specimens to them. And uh, it's been really good. Um, we've gotten really nice results and um, it seemed to uh, you know, help answer some key questions. Obviously, we can do cytology locally, and locally we can do tumor markers, but the molecular analysis, we use it a lot in our practice, and it seems to be helpful. So the next thing is obviously questions and skepticisms. So uh, questions that uh, I get asked or I can be, um, I've heard in the past. You know, the first one is, uh, I'm an interventional fellow, and I'm joining my first group. Why, why do I need to worry about this? Well, my personal opinion and my advice to anybody going into private practice, that private practice can be cruel and brutal to uh, new physicians. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, you're not taught this during fellowship, but one of the things that's really important to know is that there are volume benchmarks that you have to hit. So if you're hired as an interventional endoscopist for a private group that has, say, five or six general gastroenterologists, and you know, that group owns an ambulatory surgical center, you know, there are gonna be volumes, even though it's not explicitly said to you, um, there is gonna be an expectation for you to hit a target in order to be offered partnership or to be offered, offered a fair and equivalent um, amount of partnership to your partners. And you know, 
if you're the interventional guy for five or six people, you'll be spending a lot of time in that hospital. And those procedures you do in the hospital are not counting towards your productivity in the ASC. And unless they're willing to give you some kind of discount, so you know maybe the expectation is for people to produce a thousand procedures a year, and you're only able to produce seven hundred or seven fifty because you're doing all the ERCPs and EUSs for the group. You know if they give you a discount, say you know we'll, we'll lower your benchmark so that you can become an equal partner. And keep in mind that that's actually illegal, but a lot of groups do it. You know a lot of groups have different verbiage for that. They'll say you know, productivity, or they'll say, uh, par, uh, you know, participation. But, you know, the, the reality is that you're going to be given a benchmark to hit. And so if you have EUS in the ASC, that allows you to actually hit your benchmarks a lot easier. So maybe, you know, those of those 250 EUSs you're doing for your group, if you can bring 100 of them to the ASC, again, you know, earlier comments about the volume needed to break even is a lot more than a hundred, but I'm just using this as a descriptive example. You know, uh, you can you can add that to your 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 kind of productivity count. The next question is, well, I'm an academic practice, or I'm going to be an academic practice. This is even implied to me. Not not really, but maybe it does because more and more academic practices are measuring productivity, and they're making. A lot of um, academic centers have involvements with ambulatory surgical centers that the hospital system owns or the, um, you know, the medical group owns. And so, you know, this is another way for you to improve your productivity. Um, another question or concern is, doesn't doing this in an ASC sacrifice quality? I don't believe so. I think we have similar adverse events to what we have in the hospital. We have um, similar yields to what we get in the hospital. The, the hardest thing, again, is not having rows when we were doing FNA, but having FNB, uh, doing FNB is helpful, provided you can get your FNB needles for a reasonable price. So something to consider about. Another advantage is that because of this volume, we were able to create one of the um, few private practice run advanced endoscopy fellowships in the country. And um, that'll be a topic of another conversation, another podcast I do. But, you know, it's been very helpful. And we've been able to train uh, 10 fellows to date uh, using a bulk of the uh, EUS volume that comes from the ASC. You know, my fellows graduate with between 350 to 400 EUSs with a 30% FNA rate. And a majority of those are coming in the ASC. So I think it's another possibility way, another way to branch out and, and you know, help your practice. Um, so in conclusion, you know, I think endoscopic ultrasound is a really important procedure, obviously. I think we all agree with that. I think it's a valuable procedure to bring into a surgical center. Um, there's steps to it. There's um, things to consider. You have to have the support of your practice. You have to have forward-thinking practice members. You have to have a good relationship with the industry. And you have to have a clear understanding of what your group is paid for those procedures. And, you know, um, do the math. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not rocket science for the most part, but it is something that does require a lot of thought. Um, when we started this uh, program, we were the only ones in the country, to my knowledge, um, and, uh, you know, I would, last I kind of heard or um, have spoken to people, uh, there's probably about 25 or 30 centers in the United States that are doing ASC-based EUS right now. 
Um, I think with cheaper equipment and different alternatives, uh, we're going to see a lot more. And I do think it's something to really, really consider. I'm a big advocate for it and happy to answer any questions in the comments or obviously um, debate or discuss it on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at suchdev, S-A-C-H-D-E-V-M-D. Um, I'm also going to have a podcast-specific um, Twitter account at some point here. <laughs> I'm new to this world, but uh, the um, the uh, handle for that is going to be at, um, what is it? Sorry, I have it here. I have to look it up because I don't remember it. <laughs> at int underscore endo underscore pdcast. So at the interventional endoscopist podcast, but they only let me have 15 um characters so i have to keep working with that so uh i'll put a link in in the description as well finally my last two points uh, that i like to bring up and is you know support your societies work with your societies you know be an advocate for yourself uh, nobody else is advocating for a physician so your society is the best way to do that whether it's asge acg aga fight aasld whatever it is um get involved um you know um, and the final thing, again, uh, mental health, I mentioned it last, and I'm probably going to mention it at any podcast I ever do, that, you know, physicians struggle with mental health. And if you are um, struggling, uh, you know, please reach out to a friend, to a colleague, reach out to me on direct message at MD or at my uh, podcast uh, Twitter handle once I figure out what the name's going to be, but at int underscore endo underscore p-d-c-a-s-t um but yeah um don't worry about what your uh, medical licensing board says you know they don't support us either yeah, you know obviously physicians are scared to declare that they are struggling um and the pressures are a lot debt is a lot um liability you know morale is down for a lot of physicians so don't do anything drastic reach out and um Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to my third podcast, hopefully. Thank you so much.